Mel Tempest is known as a fitness business influencer, hands-on health club owner, ebook author, and presenter. Mel has known to be controversial, challenges the status quo, and lives outside the square. Her skill set is current on trends, savvy, and in demand. Her primary goal is to get more health club owners moving towards innovation, technology, and social media success. Her own success comes through tough and humble beginnings. Mel Tempest now presents to you the Gym Owners Podcast. More than just the business of fitness, proudly supported by National Fitness Business Alliance. Well, good morning. This morning I have Thomas Plummer with me. Thomas Plummer has been working in the fitness industry for over 30 years. Though he's not one to brag, he's known as the fitness business guru. Throughout his years as a road warrior, maverick and leading consultant of the fitness industry, he has seen it all. He's the founder of the National Fitness Business Alliance. He's no holding back, say it like you mean it, leave out all the bullshit approach is what makes him not only one of the best speakers in the industry, but by far the most entertaining. These days, he has found his true calling in life coaching and helping people find their true purpose in life helping them set and reach goals, and asking tough questions to get them thinking about their future. Tom has a unique approach to guiding and leading the way with a blunt way of telling you things you don't want to hear, but need to hear. He truly is on a mission to change lives. Good morning, Thomas. Hi, Mel. Thank you. It's, I don't know if I can live up to that introduction. I'm, I might have to come back in a few years. That's, <laughs> that one scared me. You may have to do my PR for me. So. Uh, you're very so, welcome. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, sadly, yeah, a lot of years of experience. They're probably closer to 40 now. I think actually wow. this will be my 40th year. So. Well, that's amazing. Um, been around for a while. So. So I hear you have some interesting questions for me today. So what are we going to talk about? I, I certainly do, Thomas. Listen, I've, I've been speaking to some club owners uh, back here uh, home, and um, some of them have said, look, I'd love it if you could ask Tom some of these questions for me. So let's head it off with the first question, which is from Greg Porter from Crunchy's Health and Fitness here in Australia. He says, Tom, which gym chain fitness model or health and wellness studio do you think has the best model for the current climate and which model is best suited to be a one-stop shop for future trends? Jeez, we could spend an hour on that question now just by itself. Uh, the, the thing I would like anybody that's in the business or thinking about how they're going to survive in the next five years would be to not look for any one player because players rise, they fall, you know, they have peak years. There, there's a point where they all kind of at some point self-destruct. So I would look more at what business model is working today and what's sustainable. I also, I think one of the biggest things to start with there is that there's no, you don't want to be a one-stop shop. Uh, that's a mistake that the big chains make. That's why many of them worldwide um, are, are not doing so well as they used to. That one size fits all, I have fitness for everybody. That was a very popular thing back in the 90s, but it's a failing business model now. So the, the concept going forward, at least for I see it for the next 10 years, is going to be a very target specific market. I'm going to go for that client that wants results, will pay for results, understands coaching and what coaching is about, and they're probably going to do it in a smaller, more community environment. 
so that's the, the ideal one is going to be somewhere most likely going forward is 6,000 to 12,000 square feet or 600 to about uh, 1,200 meters. And it's going to be one that caters toward that select client where I might have somewhere between three to 500 clients paying me a little higher average, but everybody's there for results. Everybody's there trying to, to get it done, so to speak. But they, they understand that the product is coaching. That's what they're buying, and that's, that's what they're looking for. Um, many of the chains out there are trying to emulate this, but many times they're just too big and too late to it. Many of the brands that have popped up over time are, are having to evolve or fade away completely. Um, you have a lot of any times, for example, in Australia. And over here, they're letting them evolve into training gyms where they're going away from this little community membership gym to actually a training-based gym. And uh, I think that's great for the leadership uh, for many time. I think that's very forward-thinking. But they're letting the business model itself evolve. So to answer that question directly, I would look at the business model. Is it sustainable now? Is it, is it based on a target-specific client, not everybody? And am I willing to let that technology or my, my base model evolve as time goes by? Uh, I'm not so much into the brand names, but I'm into how the business is delivered and how the coaching experience is delivered. And that's what the common th theme is now for the successful training gyms. Okay. So, Thomas, let's just take a, a step back for a moment. You speak about training gyms. So, for those in the American, uh, sorry, the Australian market, um, that terminology is something that they quite don't understand. So, what is a training gym? A training gym is, uh, well, it's easier to start with a mainstream gym. If I look at a mainstream big box gym, it could be somewhere around uh, 3,000 meters to 6,000 meters, somewhere in there, 30,000 feet and bigger. And if I'm looking at that size gym, then it's there's a traditional model that goes with that. I might have 5 or 6% of my clients involved in one-on-one -on -one training. Uh, I've got the traditional old group exercise rooms you know, down the hall doing Les Mills or something like that. I've got, uh, you know, the uh, maybe a couple of gr um, soft group rooms like yoga or something going on. I've got uh, 75 pieces of cardio and a sea of fixed plane equipment. And I, I, it's just you know, everybody, if I say that, everybody can imagine that box. So, so imagine the opposite of that box where I maybe have somewhere around – 6,000 to 12,000 square feet, you know, 600 to 1,200 meters. And I'm looking at this going, okay, uh, what do I, the client and that client is usually the one that is, is, is totally different than you get in the other one in, in the mainstream boxes. A lot of mainstream box clients are there because of the price. It's a low price or it's, I'm, I'm asking some renting equipment. I'll pay you, you know, $39 a month to come and use your treadmills. In a training gym, people will pay more, but they're getting leadership and coaching at every step. So one of the first uh, definers of coaching gym or training gyms is how much coaching am I getting for the money I'm paying? And in a training gym, everybody gets help. Everybody gets coaching, not 5 to 6% like most of the big chains worldwide. Everybody gets help. So that's the first criteria. Second is the level of coaches is usually far superior. Um, the big the big gyms tend to do pretty good with that, but they can't. You, you've got too many trainers, too many part timers, too many entry level coaches. Too many. There's not enough ongoing support. 
So the quality of coaching in a smaller training gym is almost always very much superior to what could be found in the chains. The chains could solve that problem if they start to understand that what they're selling is not rental equipment, but the fact that they're selling results, then it would be pretty easy to change that. And there's companies over here that have already started to do that. Another aspect of the training gym is it's usually done in every, every experience is coaching, meaning I might have team coaching, uh, which is usually geared toward a 24 to 40 year old market, for example, um, next generation CrossFit style training, but it's safe. It's moved on. The coaches are better, more experienced. I might have small group for intensive coaching. I could have one-on-one training. But everybody's there paying a fee to get some level of coaching, be it that I get the coach one-on-one or perhaps I share the cost of the, the coach or in another, I just there because it's 20 people screaming an hour and having a great time on the floor. So uh, the definers, everybody gets results. Everybody gets there. The client will pay more for the results. The client's not there because it's the cheapest gem. They're there because that's where they're most likely to get the results they need. Okay, fantastic. So let, let's stick with the training uh, gym discussion. So let's assume that um, somebody like Greg wakes up tomorrow and he says, okay, my new avenue is going to be a, a training gym and I'm going to start all over again. What is a great way to start uh, with brand building, to start with his personal brand, but also how does he go about selling results so that he can get people coming to him to, um, to become a member of his training gym? There, when people start with the brand, that's that, that's actually it's more common in the area of, in the era of social media than it ever was before because we didn't think about the brand as much because the brand was a sign, it was a location back in the day, but now the brand has become personal because of uh, because of social media. So if I'm trying to build a brand, I'm trying, I, I've got to start with that, but also we can control our brand and image much more tightly now because of social media. So I can look at, you know, 10 kilometers from my gym and I can look at somewhere between 10 to 20 kilometers from there. I can, or mileage, which everybody's, you know, depending on who's listening to this, because you've got listeners in all countries. So it could be somewhere between five to 10 miles. If I'm looking at this, the people, the distance from that, I can control it through social media. I control every aspect of my brand. So the first thing is, if I'm going to start to build a successful gym, I've got to build my own brand. They, everybody says, oh, social media is so easy to do that. Social media is, is in many ways the easiest way to destroy your brand. And you can work for years to build a brand, but you can destroy it in just a few minutes with some lousy posts. So the first thing is, what do I want to be known for? What expert do I want to be? So if I'm going to work with, say, women over 40, and I'm going to work in uh, a town your size, I'm probably going to project this out, you know, X uh, distance from my club, and I'm going to be position myself, my personal brand as the fitness expert on women over 40 in that area. And I'm going to post on that probably six days a week or more. Um, fitness tips for that group. I'm going to start to uh, put some home workouts for that group, suggested reading for that group, links for that group. Because if I'm going to, if I want that group in my gym, I'm going to have to become the fitness expert in recognition. One of the biggest things about branding and the biggest thing that's changed in the fitness market for in the last decade is traditional marketing hardly works anymore. People want to be entertained. They want to build a relationship with people. They want to buy something from people they trust. 
And the first line of offense for that is is your ability to talk to people on social media. So if you if you send me you know a fitness tip three or four days a week, I'm following that. I'm linking to some blogs you're writing. I go to your website page once in a while because you got some cool videos and stuff I can do at home. When I'm ready to join a gym, I'm going to be ready to join your gym because you've already helped me and I've never even set foot in your gym. So the brand has to start with who you are, who you want to talk to, and almost everybody makes a mistake as they try to be everything to everybody in that level. So the the second step is that I have to build a brand for my business, and I I have to continually, continually, continually post uh, stuff that supports my brand, that helps people identify my brand from, from home. So if I'm scrolling through my social media and um, I'm on Facebook and I'm just scrolling down, standing in line at the coffee shop, and I see this quick video of 30 people having a great time, you know, pushing sleds and screaming and there's some crazy music with it, I might hesitate on that. But I just built a brand because I felt like, gee, everybody in town's in this gym but me. Because it, remember, we're saturating within, you know, X mileage from the, the gym itself. So we can actually start to build that identity very closely. So the brand is a combination of of your posts on social media, your signage, your uniforms, how you greet people, how you thank the people at the end of the workout, um, the color of your shirts. It's it's the training and education you bring to it. It's the support and help. It's how your staff answers questions. Your brand is a thousand small things done correctly that most people just think it's social media or Facebook or something and fail to see that everything you do is your brand. Every interaction with the client is part of your brand. Every client that fails in your gym is part of your brand. Every client that's successful is part of your brand. But we don't tend to manipulate that or understand that most of that is controllable if we understand what branding is and what we're trying to accomplish with it. Okay, so Thomas, tell me, what is the um, number one ongoing mistake that you see um, club owners make with their brand and their personal brand? (laughs) For the training gym guy, you stop posting selfies. Uh, (laughs) You're not the role model you think you are. I'm saying that as partial joke, but also partial because it's, it's it's a problem when you become the product. You're not the product. You're the master coach that can help people get done. In the mainstream gyms, it's the the biggest problem they make is they they don't have any they don't have a specific target market they're searching for. So every post is look at all the new equipment we have, and here's our all new classes, and here's all this. But the the question the consumer asks now that he didn't ask ten years ago is, who is this gym for? So if I'm looking at a very large mainstream chain club in Australia, uh, the Fitness First clubs, uh, I mean, uh, they're sold, but the old Fitness First model, if, if they're marketing and they're sending out to everybody within you know, 20 miles of their place, it's, it's who's this gym for? Who should belong to this gym? I, I can't tell from your post. I can't tell from your videos. All you do is talk about classes you're ordering. It, it doesn't. If it doesn't speak to me as an individual or let me know I belong there, then I'll assume I don't belong there. So a brand kind of sets the tone for who should belong and likes attract likes. So over time, you have to, to create an identity that lets me know that this gym is designed for somebody 35 to 55 years old that wants results and 
you know, whatever we're talking about there. So the biggest mistake they make now, that's a good question, is the fact that the, it's too generic, that most branding is so generic, trying to make everybody happy, trying to appeal everybody that lives around your club and your community, and, and it just doesn't work that way anymore. You can't be everything to everybody. You have to have a specific target market for your brand for a brand to work over time. And that's where car dealerships fail, and that's where – if you're buying a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, that has a target membership. That They know who they're selling to. They know that guy, where he lives, how much he makes, what he drives now, what he's going to drive in the future, what kind of phone he has, what kind of shoes he wears. They know all that. If I sell a mainstream car that's just that generic mom and pop car – uh, if it has no identity, there's nobody that buys it because it doesn't – I don't associate it with me. And I have to associate the vehicle with me. Well, I have to associate the gym with me. And you have to build that association for me where I know that I'm the guy that needs to buy that gym because you built that gym specifically for me or my group of people. Um, the old adage is true. 80% of your gym comes from one specific target market, meaning 80% will come from one about 15 to 20-year uh, age span, and it's usually defined by that. 80% of your members might be 35 to 55 or 40 to 60, and that 80% number is who you should market to. That's who your brand is for. But most people don't know why you exist, who you do your business for, who should belong, who should not belong, because all they do is run pictures of new, new equipment added, new classes, and here's our instructors, and here's a team shot of all our thousands of, you know, it's just, it's, it's so out of date that it's pathetic. Um, I, I, Thomas, I must say that when I speak to club owners myself, I really feel that the majority of club owners actually don't know who their members are, who their demographic are. And um, I, I feel that that's why a lot of the larger gyms assume that they need to be a, a one-stop shop. Um, how does a gym owner who's not quite knowledgeable sort of walk out into their gym and understand who their demographic is and who they're targeting um, instead of just throwing a fruit salad at the community? How can they sort of get up tomorrow morning, walk into their club and understand who their demographic is? What's the first step to knowing that? Well, the first thing I would try to do is scare the hell out of them because the, that type of uh, gym doesn't, is not sustainable. It's nothing that I can – I can't project that big box mainstream gym into the future because they're failing in almost every market in the world. Um, I just came back from uh, – I did a workshop in uh, our Brazil for 200 people. Uh, I did a show there 10 years ago. The, the host had became friends over time, and I went back this year and did a full day for these folks. And 10 years ago, in a city of 19 million, Apollo, there were no training gyms whatsoever. In one neighborhood, just one neighborhood, I passed 15 gyms in one day. And out of those 15, I visited three. And these are our next generation gyms. And I visited a couple of big, uh, you know, the box clubs. And I visited all these other smaller clubs, but still pretty target-specific units. If I was running that big box club, I'd have to look around and going, they're just, they're taking diff every, if I've got 10 different segments in my market, they're taking all 10 different sex segments just by just a few members at a time. They're just breaking the club apart. So if you're going to be a mainstream gym and you want to survive, it's not who you have in your gym now. 
It's who you're going to have your gym in five years if you're going to stay in business. And they're seldom going to be this two, to the same group of people. If I had a mainstream gym, over here, the, the world is broken apart. And uh, the good thing about American business culture is we screw things up so fast that if something doesn't work, it, it doesn't last very long because there's just so much intense competition here. But people from other parts of the country can watch here and see what we do screw up, who fails, who wins, and why. So it, here, the main, that $39 mainstream gym, the guy caught in the middle, there's the low-end guys, that, that $10 to, in your case, still 39 but the lower-end people. And then you have the upper-end, the training gyms, that get anywhere from $300 to $1,000 a month on an average. Well, that training gym is coming in your area, and that will be one of the next big things there because it's already validated all over the world. That's what the consumer wants. And there's money in Australia, and there's sophisticated buyers, and there's there's a there's a third of the population or more that would probably buy that gym. Um, the the mainstream guys have to reposition their gym, and that term is very important. Reposition means I it doesn't matter what course I'm on now, I have to change my compass direction and set a new course because what I'm doing is probably not sustainable into the future. So I, I need to switch to a training gym model. I need to add equipment that attracts that type of client. I need to upgrade my entry into trainers, put a lot more money in my trainers, a lot more money in their education. I've got to develop a, my own systems of training within the, that system. Uh, there's so much I have to do to, to be able to move that forward that most of the guys won't do the work. Um, I, I just wrote about this today. It's, it's amazing, but uh, I was writing an article for a magazine here today, and one of the things I, I, I wrote about is every good restaurant's usually owned by a chef. There's very few restaurants in the world that are any good that are, are not owned by chefs, um, especially independent restaurants. But yet gym owners, the mainstream guys, they, they've never trained a client. They don't know how to talk to trainers. They don't know trainerese. They don't know where to – how do you even put together a system? They don't know the gurus. They don't know the big guys on that side. They don't know the trade shows those guys go to. So if you don't know any of that, what you're doing is you're in the equipment rental business. And most of the big chains, and many of them still in Australia, despite claiming to be in the fitness business, are nothing more than equipment rental companies. You know, they pay $39 a, a month, and I can go in and use a treadmill. Um, that's it. They're not, they're not fitness companies. They're, they offer fitness equipment, but they don't give anybody help because less than 6% of the, the, the gym member over there gets any help, meaning one-on-one -on -one training. So 94% of the people are doing fitness on their own. So you're not in the fitness business. You're in the equipment rental business. And so it, the, if these guys want to get relative, they want to be part of what's going to happen uh, and be relevant in the coming years, then they have to understand that their product is results, that they have to be able to get the maximum results for the maximum members in the shortest period of time and create a business system wrapped around that. They won't sell as many members, but the members that join will pay a lot more to be part of the process. And so, yeah, so question one there, it goes back to the branding and even this question, especially for the mainstream guys, is what the hell kind of business am I in? You know, what do I even sell here? And if you're going to be in the equipment rental business, then guys will take it away doing it cheaper, and guys will take your best clients away by getting results in the top end, and you're left in the middle with a failing business plan. And somebody's going to go real cheap down there and start a whole chain of these low-end clubs, and they're going to destroy the market. Uh, 
about uh, five years, six years ago, there were 27 Gold's Gems in New Jersey, uh, one of our eastern uh, Atlantic Ocean sea states here, very popular state or populated state, uh, very heavy gem numbers over the years. Uh, they had 27 Gold's there, and now there's, I think, five or six left because these guys were all priced at $39 in the middle, and they all over time either you know gave up their thing, changed it, went low, went high, went somewhere else, but they, anybody in the middle will get destroyed. So you either go low and go really cheap, and your area is probably going to go down to about $19 a month, or you got to go high and try to get 40% of your members into the training so I can show 19, but I want 40% of my members paid, involved in the training program. Both of those are good business plans, but the thing is, if you just wait and see what the hell's happened, you're going to just get hammered. It's just not going to work. Yeah, I tend to agree with you um, there, Thomas, and there's certainly a lot of um, information that you've given for uh, club owners to take on board, and I certainly like the terminology, um, the next generation um, of gyms, because I do tend to agree, and I'm seeing it in my own community. Uh, people are paying a lot of money to go to training gyms, functional um, fitness uh, venues. You know, I could honestly say that here in Australia, there's certainly not an issue with people paying sixty-five to seventy dollars a week just to rock up to a, a venue that's probably only about two hundred square meters and probably only has about you know thirty thousand dollars worth of functional training equipment. And these uh, venues are signing people up on twelve-month contracts. They're paying their their sixty-five, seventy dollars a week, and the the demographic of these people paying that amount are around that twenty-one to thirty-five. Um, age bracket so I think it's it has already landed here and I do think it's really important for uh, club owners to either get out or to make the next step and to start to uh, to change what their, their business model is about um, thank that's you fine. That, that fine. that's a brilliant what you just said is so important because that client is the one that has to their why have we never seen that client before? Why are these gyms able to identify this client and the mainstream person has never been able to do it before? So there's, we, we've always assumed the client was there because of price. And what you just said is it's, it's in a very insidious thing. It's like the old frog sitting in the hot water and sooner or later he boils because he doesn't jump out. I don't know if that's true or not, but that story's been around for a hundred years. But the, the, the mainstream gym owner is the same thing, is that they're, he's slowly uh, losing his best members to people, and these guys are paying two to $300 a month to be in uh, these little 200-meter gyms that it's incredible. And, but now the next step is people will pay more to be in smaller groups, and people will pay outrageous money to be in 101. The small group is where the money is. So they're coming. They're, they're on every corner. They're going to open everywhere. And sooner or later, there's a grand groundswell or tipping point where these mainstream guys are going to look around and go, we, we had the edge. We should have attacked. We should have gone for it. We could have you know, controlled our own markets. We could have been the people first with the training. Instead, they're going to be playing catch-up when they find themselves surrounded by 30 of those gyms. Oh, absolutely. And I think catch-up is a very expensive way to go. 
I think it's um, the, mo- the most important thing is that they need to get over their fear. I think fear plays a very big role with a lot of club owners uh, here back home as to why they don't make change. They spend too much time sitting in the office thinking about um, should I or shouldn't I. I think they just need to take the step. They just need to say, you know what, this is the trend. This is what's happening. Here is the proof. People are paying it. Have a look. It's, it's happening out there. So just make the change because really what is the absolute worst scenario that can happen uh, if it doesn't turn out with a positive outcome? So I think it's the, the most important thing is to overcome the fear, to take the step. And if um, they need help you know, to go out, get themselves a, a great fit, a fitness business coach like yourself, um, you know, speak to people that have done this already and just, just make the change because otherwise, you know what, they're just going to become the milk bar on the corner and at some stage they're going to have no choice but to either close their doors um, or just to, to sell up. So there's certainly a lot of information there that you've given the audience to think about with training gyms. My next question, um, Thomas, is sort of similar to what we've been discussing and it comes from Tommy Hopkins who is um, a a small studio owner from Fit Life here in Australia and his question to you is the current state of affairs around the globe of big box gyms versus small box functional training centres versus 24-hour gyms and $10 gyms. He wants to know what's happening around the globe and how do you see that happening or coming back here, back home here in Australia? Because you guys in America, I mean, I love traveling to America and I find that every time I go there, I feel like I'm stepping five years ahead of uh, my own country and I love to come back here and be an early adopter. But you get the um, privilege of traveling to places like South America and I know that you've just come back from the UK. So can you share some of those experiences with what you're seeing with big box gyms and um, the $10 gyms versus the 24-hour facilities? The uh, yeah, Another good question. The, the, way, the way I would want Tommy and everybody else to think about this is to kind of look at there's a certain amount of uh, the big chains that we'll try to fight. Not many of them. I'm, I'm going to say from my experience all around the world would be less than 10%. There's, uh, I'm, I'm doing the UK actually the 29th, we're going over, but we're going to have, I think, maybe 100, 120 people the first day. So I've got four owners there that control a few hundred of the biggest clubs in the UK. They're going to be sitting there, but the rest of the people are going to be uh, guys opening. Uh, I've got new generation guys on five or seven of these little training gems. I've got guys that are opening. So we don't get many in between anymore. And the, the thing I would tell Tommy is there's not much left in between. There's You're going to see the big chains that try to make the change and convert into some form of training, meaning just to find as 40% instead of 5% of their, their clients in training, at least 40, 45% of their clients are involved in training. That makes them very hard to hurt and very sustainable in the future. Or you're going to see this next generation training gym, which is going to be this you know, somewhere around 300 to 1,200 meters and where these guys are just out there kicking it for these target-specific markets. Everybody else in the middle has kind of gone away. The interesting thing on the $10 guys is, one, um, that the 
you can't defend price over time. So there's actually people here now doing $5 memberships, which just scares the hell out of everybody. But the it's actually bouncing off the floor. It's like you drop that rubber ball and about 10 bounces into it. It starts, you know, you see, still see it bouncing a little, but it hit the floor and it's still coming up. We're down to that last bounce here, but I think it's starting to change directions is I'm thinking guys that were doing $10 now are starting to pop back up toward $19. And some of these guys have learned to survive and are starting to lower their or raise their lowest price. So that's coming. But really, the cannibals ate the cannibals in the, the $10 market. So there's so many competitors and imitators in that category that they pretty much destroyed each other because there's just too many of them for that market. The other end of that is the upper scale training gym that takes these, as you say, three hundred you know dollars per month clients at sixty five a week, and there's hundreds of those opening here, hundreds of them opening in the UK, hundreds of them opening all over uh, Brazil right now that are heading into this category where they're they're chasing that target specific client and the client is reacting to that. So the guys in the middle are the guys that get hurt. Anytime Fitness is a perfect example where that could have been a been there, done that chain that disappeared, or it can be uh, leadership that turns them into the next generation training gym, which they are. So that's going to make that, that, that brand even more valuable worldwide. But you see guys like Snap and some of these older brands that don't change. They haven't done anything. They're still selling the same product. They'll probably fail. So you, you look at these, there's no middle. Now, the other, the other part of this question is things like 24-hour and all that. That's really irrelevant. That was a, a game changer 20-some years ago, but being open 24 hours is irrelevant now. Being all these kind of gimmicks that came out, you know, probably older than Tommy, knowing most of those guys, but all those gimmicks that came out back in the day are, are the $10 gym is over 25 years old. The 24 hour concept is over 20 years old. CrossFit's over 20 years old. And most of those have either died or evolved into what's going on today. And that will evolve into what goes on next. So 24 hours, not defensible, nothing to worry about. I certainly wouldn't consider that in my gym. Um, I don't think it's worth it, but I would consider trying to figure out how to make more money from fewer clients. And I think that's the future. Yeah, I happen to agree with that. I, I must admit, um, you know, I've been a club owner for nearly 14 years. And when I when I started, Thomas, I, I really did think it was all about how many members have I got, how many members have I got. And I soon learned that it's not about how many members you've got to, to brag about sitting around the coffee table. It really is about your profit and loss at the end of the day. And I, you know, would prefer to have half the amount of members that I have now and double the, the profit. And I think it's that's something, another area that we need to uh, educate our fitness business owners on, that it's not about how many members you have in your club. It's about your, you know, your bottom line at the end of the day. I think, um, and the only way that the majority of fitness business owners are going to get the bottom line that they want is to pretty much double their prices and to um, offer more personalized coaching as opposed to being that fruit salad type of club that we talked about earlier. Um, well, I hope Tommy got his answers uh, out of what you spoke about them. 
My next question comes from Nick, and, and Nick is actually based in the United States with yourself, Thomas, and he had a couple of questions for you that I thought was quite interesting. And one of them I hear quite often from club owners is, how do you know when it's the right time to open another location? And his second question and um, this is quite interesting, is what are the three biggest mistakes people make when they form a partnership? So what what can you tell us about those two? Uh, let's see. If I'm, The basic, the, the very simple rule of thumb is if you can be profitable uh, pre-tax before you have to give the, the government money. So if I have a, a gym that costs me $500,000 a year to run and I deposit six hundred dollars before I have to pay taxes on that, if I pre-tax 20% and I can do that for six consecutive months, then that business is probably stable enough where you could go open another gym. Uh, so I'm looking for, is the business stable? Can the owner consistently deliver a minimum profit, which is 20% for the style of gyms we like? If those two hold up, he's probably ready to go do that. The problem is very few people should open a second gym because most people get into the business because for they just like helping people. They like what it brings to the table. So a lot of people are never really geared mentally because when you open a second gym, you're not training clients now. You're training you know, staff. You're working with accountants. You're working with solicitors. You're working – with all the stuff that just makes the fitness business a business. And with one gym, you can still have a touch on the floor and still be involved in the business, but you open multiple gyms, it gets very tough. The third, the hardest gym anybody will ever open is the third gym because you, if you have a strong personality, you can split your gym twice. You can spread your bullshit across two gyms pretty easily. The third gym, you can't spread it any further. You have to have systems. So the third gym validates if indeed you have systems or if you're just so strong personality that you just make it work despite the fact that you have no systems. But to me, that rule of if you've got it for six months and you can hold it together for six months of 20% net or better, um, then, then, you, then you should at least consider opening a gym if that's what you want to do. And that's a completely different exit strategy, maybe left for a better another conversation, but that's, um, but at least start with that reference. Six, point, six months, 20% net, you're probably ready to go. Okay, great. And uh, the question on the biggest mistake people make when they form a partnership. The first one is they, they don't know why they need a partnership. So I spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and make a lot of money breaking up partnerships every year um, because they're usually set up so badly when you go into one. So one is if I'm going in, could I have done the same thing with a loan? Um, so if I need $150,000 to open my gym, the guy says, I'll just take a partner. But could you have just borrowed the money over seven to 10 years for an aggressive interest rate? So first of all, do I need a partner to get this done? And can I just borrow the money some other way to do it? Uh, another mistake is when people do partnerships, they, they, they tend to think there's safety in numbers. So I'll, I'll get two of my friends, we're all interested in opening this gym and we'll do it together, but we have no idea you know, what's going to happen if, if we disagree. We don't have any idea on how to get out of this. So not having a partnership agreement in place and not having one final decision maker is almost always the kiss of death. Uh, the third one is it just at, at some point as you fight the battle over time in there, you usually outgrow your partners, so you have to have a way to get the partner out of that. 
at, at that. So some basic rules here is one, set up an agreement or a management agreement with your solicitor before you get into this that states, one, is there a formula that will allow me to put a value on this business so we all agree going in what this business is going to be worth when we get out of it? And that's usually a formulation formulation based on something like earnings before income taxes, some type of depreciation, and amortization. So earnings before income tax, and that's defined differently in different countries, but uh, earnings before income taxes, you know, how much do I show that we made before I have to give it all to the government? Then depreciation is just, you know, how I write my equipment off over time legally uh, through whatever tax code I'm working in. And amortization is intellectual property. Do I have a uh, franchise? Well, that's worth so much money. Do I have books that I've written that help the business grow? Well, that's worth so much money. Very few owners have that unless you're a franchise. So if I look at EBITDA plus owner's compensation, it's meaning defined as what does the owners take out besides their salary, if there's insurances, cell phone, car payments, whatever I'm writing off through my business. So EBITDA plus owner's compensation times 3.5 minus the debt is what the business is normally worth. In Australia, I would use a little higher multiplier, probably 4 to 4.5 because I believe businesses sell there a little higher rate than they do here because there's just fewer of them. And you're usually buying a lease in, in Australia versus a functional business, and that sometimes brings more value to it as well. But if you take EBITDA uh, plus owner's compensation times four in Australia minus, or minus the debt, then that gives me a working idea of what this business is worth, and we all agree upon that going in. So the second thing, and then, then you have to agree on death, divorce, and distress. So if we get into this and I say, look, Mel, I, I'm, I don't enjoy working with you. I want to buy you out. So we look at the formula, and then I buy you out. So I, I put the number on it. I'll just buy you out over five years, and you're gone, or you buy me out, and I'm gone. So you have a buyout agreement based on a formula, but you also agree to buy out over time, not immediately, because what happens is somebody gets divorced, then they need the money now, so they want the partner to buy them out now, but that usually kills the business for both partners, the remaining partner and the one that wants to run away. So we usually have a five-year buyout. Divorce, if I use that policy, then the business is worth what we agreed on in most courts in almost every country will allow that agreement to stay in place because the partners that actually drew it up themselves and agreed on the value of the business before they even opened the business. So most guys won't overturn that because you'd have to have a hell of an expert that says that formula is wrong. Uh, we should have used this formula. And that's pretty tough for somebody to override that. And distress means I know we're going to get in a fight sooner or later, then let's agree now to disagree and we'll just bring in a mediator instead of getting solicitors involved and trying to do it that way. And also the most important thing, mistake, is you have to have one person that makes final decisions for the partnership. And one person has to have the final say if we're going to reinvest in treadmills or if we're going to spend money on marketing. So we can all talk about it as partners, but one person's got to run it because when you have multiple guys trying to all vote and they get pissed at each other, the whole business shuts down. Mm -hmm. 
that's interesting. It sounds a lot easier just to uh, perhaps just go alone and if you need to borrow the money from the bank because that just sounds a little bit more simple than getting involved in a partnership. And I must admit, I don't think um, I'm somebody that could go into a, a, a partnership. I think um, I'd be one of those people that would uh, probably borrow the money from the bank and make all of the final decisions myself in business. Thank you. So uh, if you have the money to do that, but uh, the key is a lot of people don't have the money to, the, or the the wherewithal to borrow from the bank. So a lot of money for your first gems, especially as you see growth happening there in the next couple of years, a lot of the growth will be funded by one. It's usually training clients. I'm already training the guy that has the money, and he'll loan it to me. Two, it's family. Three, it's friends, and four, it's going to be the banks. So I think you're going to see a just an absolutely hellacious growth rate in gyms in your country in the next five years. But the funding will not be traditional sources. It's going to be almost all private because you're opening these smaller 200 to 1,000 um, meter gyms. And most of that's going to come from individual investors, probably not the banks. The banks will get involved in at some point in there if they start to see that these businesses are good. And you do have incentives in your country to open businesses. And that's going to make it a little bit easier but usually the, when that surge starts, that's where you're going to see it come first. I think the surge has actually started uh, back in 2003 in our community uh, when I opened my own club. There was uh, probably eight, maybe nine facilities and um, we're now in a, a community that has over 74 fitness facilities and our population has probably only grown by about 25,000 in that time. So we still have a population of around 100,000, yet we have over 70, 74 fitness facilities. And I'm finding that the generation that are opening those fitness facilities are between that 21 to 35 age bracket again and most of them are probably being financed by if not family um these these guys are holding down second and third jobs so i think the surge is happening i think people just need to be more aware of it and they need to be aware also that if if families are financing these guys that are opening up these functional training gyms you'll probably find that they'll stay open a lot longer and families will keep financing them. Um, in regards to banks, yeah, every situation is different. And I think that um, it's just probably finding what works for you. The older generation tend to go to the banks and the younger generation tend to rely on families for income to support the business that they're opening. The yes, I think, you know, yeah, it's going to be interesting. And, uh, but there's, yeah, the growth there just from the last time I did uh, – You'll see the first Phylax, the second Phylax, and what's going on now, just in that, that time period, the, the, the small gym growth is phenomenal. I, I, I think uh, if you check the statistics hold up, it looks like the number of gyms in Australia has doubled in less than five years. Uh, I, and, I agree with that, Tom. I mean, what's happening is we have investors going out and um, and this is just anywhere, not in my town, but we have investors going out there buying land and what they're doing is they're, they're in my age group and they're looking at doing something for their superannuation. So what they're doing is they're building factories and these factories are all around, you know, 150 to 250 square metres, maybe a little bit bigger. They're building them in bulk, meaning that they're, they're building 10 or 15 or 20 of them at a time in the industrialist 
estates because they're smaller areas they're affordable in rent for that age group of 21 to 35 so what's happening is these personal trainers are coming out of the training organizations trained as personal trainers and they're walking straight in and they're opening up their own businesses um, and a completely different subject to that is how hard difficult it is for people like myself to find staff so yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised if the amount of facilities has doubled um, in the last, you know, five, six or, or seven years. And it's certainly not going to slow down because uh, I believe that opening up your own uh, fitness studio or box is a little bit over-glamorized in the media and they're definitely targeting those that are coming out of training organizations to open up those boxes. So, yeah, def you're definitely right there. They're certainly doubling up um, across the board. My my next question for you is quite an interesting one. I know that we're coming to the, the end of our chat. So I have two questions and here's the first one for you. Now, with the oversupply of fitness businesses popping up, being run by inexperienced trainers, I feel there'll be a demand for experienced fitness business coaches. What makes a good fitness business coach and what is your pet hate about fitness business coaches? <laughs> uh, what makes a good one is you, you, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know where to start on. There's a hundred ways to go with that. Uh, I, I think that the biggest thing is they, do they have depth? They're, most of them are very one-dimensional. It's If you're going to help somebody, can you help them? Could I give you all the details to take to your attorney about how to set the partnership? Could I help you negotiate the lease? Could I set your price structure? Could I help you put a five-year life plan together? Could I set up your, help you think about in terms of how you're going to exit strategy? Could I handle your marketing? And can I troubleshoot your business when it's failing and figure out how to modify everything I believe to help you be successful? Uh, most coaches are not willing to get the experience level that it takes to get to that point. So um, I ran a gym and I failed. Therefore, I'm going to teach everybody my secrets is the way it's normally done. So my pet peeve is that most of the guys trying to teach this, uh, they, they try to sell a secret or if you just do these methods that I did in my gym once many years ago and I was successful, that doesn't mean it's going to be successful anywhere. And it's so you, you have to create what success is for the person in their head because everybody's different. What, what success means to you doesn't, might not mean the same to Nick or Tommy or any of the people that have asked questions today. And uh, how do I get you there? The path can be very different for everybody on how to get there. A good consultant's got to be able to individualize the process, but a good consultant also has to help you figure out what you want, where you're going to be in time, and call bullshit on you if you're not getting there, and be able to create a plan to help you go forward and actually be willing to tell the person you know, what they want to hear, but also what they don't want to hear. I'm working with a, a group of clubs in London now, and uh, I admire these guys a great deal. Uh, the guy called me almost a year ago, and he says, look, I've worked with a consultant before uh, from America. We worked with him for a few months. We lost a lot of money. We don't believe he's real. We'd like to work with you. And I said, what do you want? He says, I want you to tell me exactly how to fix problems. I'll give you the problems. You tell me how to fix it, and that's how I'll learn. 
And the guys called me every two weeks for almost a year now. Their numbers are going up. Things are changing. But he knew what he wanted. I looked at his thing, told him, okay, this is what will work. This is what will not work. We set really good goals for one year, three year, five years. We fired a bunch of staff, hired a bunch of staff, rebuilt his business plan, rebuilt his debt structure, renegotiated two of his leases. Uh, we're doing things to, to help this guy move forward, but a good consultant guys, because this guy just works his ass off. He's just one of the hardest working guys I've ever met, but he just wanted somebody to help him. He just wanted a plan. So a good consultant, can you give them a plan and can you modify the plan and individualize it for the person in front of you at the time? And not many people can do that. So where's the best place for them to look for a fitness business consultant slash coach? The best place is to get to the point where you ask good questions and you can use a lot of different people. It's like working with a solicitor and an accountant. We are, we're afraid of them because we don't know what they do. So we just defer to their uh, ideas without questioning them. And a lot of young business owners are not sophisticated enough to question, okay, why do you think that's the right strategy? Well, I read, why not this? You have to be good enough to ask the questions to be able to manipulate and manage the people that you do trust. The, the best consulting clients I have say, look, that's a good idea, but what if we do this? And I'll say, well, here's that, why that won't work, here's why that will work, and here's what my best opinion is. But they, they ask questions because they're, they're involved enough in their own business to be able to, to use experts from different fields to do that. Finding that, that all-encompassing expert anymore is probably not there. I don't know if they'll be there again. I don't know if people have the unique opportunities that some consultants such as myself have had over the years where we could be that aged old guy with a wide range of tactics. So you have to pull from different people, but you're going to have to be able to be smart enough to ask the right questions. And most owners are not, so they just get told that this is a secret or this is stuff without understanding what they even heard or being able to question that. And they can't put it together. So the, the client has to be more sophisticated before they can even work with the consultants. Interesting. I like that answer. I like that answer. So let me ask you this, Thomas. First of all, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, the workshops that you run in the States that people uh, back home here can travel to? So I've attended um, all of your workshops. But if you could tell our audience a little bit about them, that would be fantastic. Uh, it depends on where I am in the world. In the, the States, we're running, uh, we run one-day overviews, and then we run two-day master classes that are limited to usually 45 to 50 people that have experience in our system, and they want to go deep on a lot of subjects. I bring slides to those, but then it's really, let's talk about everything. And so we tend to go toward working a, in a much wider range of subjects there. Uh, we have social media schools that are very in-depth. Um, that's probably our most popular product right now. And we actually have speaker development schools, which are more linear and for people trying to break in and be that front-of-the-room speaker. Uh, interesting, I'm going to be in Australia in April doing the next Phylex show. And I've heard from Ryan and Nigel and the team there. And they're interested in really letting me uh, run amok, so to speak. Uh, Ryan is, we've been having some fun emails back and forth, but he pretty much says, what would you like to do? So I'm probably going to be doing workshops for uh, four days, maybe five days over the whole week of Phylex next year. 
And uh, we're coming up. Ryan's very creative. He's coming up with some a lot of fun topics or, or you know, uh, 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 venues that uh, we can speak to for different groups. And so uh, probably the best shot, if they can't get over here between now and then, would be to um, just um, pop in for one or for one or two days. Uh, we're going to be in San Francisco in September, and that's a master class. But if people do a little reading before they get there, look at a few videos, at least have an idea of what the system's about, that would probably be the most economical for anybody coming from Australia because it's going to be West Coast and it's a, obviously a major transit city. So getting in and out of there, you won't have to shuffle planes or go up and down the coast. Um, if you can, then try to time around another event and come maybe and see something else and let me point them in the right direction if they want to go visit gems or see what's going on. The best gems in the country are not in California on our West Coast, as most people think. Most of the best gems are on the East Coast, and that's where they should probably do a lot of their visiting is go out and see what's going on over there. But obviously that adds another you know, continental flight to the, the mix. Fantastic. So. Great to hear that you'll be at Firelex for 2018. Can you just give us a little hint on something that you'll be chatting about? <laughs> uh, I probably will not make a decision on what to teach until about 90 days out because whatever I would want to present there would be the most current information I could bring to the table at that time. The, it, the way some things are trending is that I know we're going to be talking a lot about the restoration of natural movement. We're going to talk a lot about uh, nutrition embedded into fitness centers and gyms. We'll talk about a lot about the next generation gym model and how that's evolved up to that point and what the future of fitness will be. Um, we'll spend a lot of time trying to help the bigger guys figure out what their next step is because there's some very, very good gym owners over there that own a whole lot of mainstream facilities that don't know what to do with them in the next 10 years. And I think we're even going to probably you know, look at some special groups for that, uh, special workshops for that group where we can define maybe some ideas of what they do and do it as a group with them so they can maybe think in terms of, okay, what could we do, where can we operate, and how would these things look like if they were modified. But the real thing is I, I want to be current, so I'll bring everything there that's state of the world at that point, and uh, here's the most current information. We, right now we've got clients operating in 30, 30, 31 countries, and so we're getting some great feedback from around the world of what works and doesn't work, and uh, we'll be able to apply that. By then, you know, a year in the U.S. market is a lifetime in most markets, so by the time we get over there, this market could absolutely destroy itself. Some new player could emerge. A chain could go down. It's always very exciting here. So whatever that kind of shoots out to be, I'll also bring that over. But I promise to be current, and I promise to uh, make sure that people stay five to ten years ahead over there. And, and as always, we'll try to be a little bit uh, on the fun side to keep people uh, kind of crazy and awake for a few days. That sounds great. Well, I hope that our, our audience uh – Keep an eye out for Firelex 2018. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you this morning and I do appreciate your time. And uh, if anybody's got any questions, how do they get in touch with Thomas Plummer Direct? Uh, the, the, the best questions is that they've got them is just uh, to email you and just forward them on over and let me uh, get them back to your network. 
Uh, I can answer them directly in your network. I think that's a, a great thing that you're doing there. I like how everybody's getting together. I see you're adding new gems all the time to that. So I think that kind of vocal group that shares information and discussions, um, I hope that takes off and does very well because I think it's, it's needed and I think it's a great uh, resource to share. Hey, I went to this workshop. I did this. We tried this. I think that's good. So I hope that works. So the best thing you can do is just reach out to you and your network and let me answer it for everybody. And that's, uh, I think we can get the, because if somebody asks a good question, we might as well share it with the whole group. So we can certainly post those in your network as the questions come up. Sounds like a plan for the future. Thank you again for this morning's interview, Thomas. Thanks, Mel, very much. I appreciate the opportunity. I'll see you either here or there sometime soon. You sure will. Thank you. Thank you for joining the Gym Owners Podcast, sponsored and supported by National Fitness Business Alliance and Gym Click Media. Find Mel Tempest on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Join us next time for the Gym Owners Podcast.